Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I was having such an interesting conversation with my assistant producer. And I found the guest that I'm going to introduce you to in a moment. And she said, where did you find her? And I realized that I get off on these little, you know, Google searches to find heart-centered leaders around the globe. And sometimes I just get in different webs, no pun intended, and start reading about people and I get immersed in their story. And I, I feel like I already feel how valiant their character is and how much I want them on the show. So today I want to introduce you to Crystal Toop. She is a fellow Canadian. She is so many things. She is a storyteller. She's a counselor. She's a member of the Peak Wanakan. I'm hoping I said that properly. First Nation. She is formerly the site coordinator for Omami Winnini. She is also involved with the Indigenous Art Gallery, an archaeological exhibit, her grassroots within Indigenous organizations and issues related to best practices of homelessness, youth and women's rights, criminal justice, maternal and family mental health, cultural education, Indigenous-led research, and just overall information around governance, I could not think of interviewing a more heart-centered leader than Crystal. So Crystal, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. (laughs) You know, I shared with you before we hit the record button, I always, you know, love to have this structure of four leadership questions and the one that has permanent residence, which I will ask you. And then I'd love to end the show with the fab four. and. I'm going to put out there what I talk about a lot with leaders is I just allowed my intuition management to be in the forefront today during my intention and prepping for this interview. And I think this interview is going to go far and wide if we just let go of the structure a little bit, because I think you have so much to offer the listeners in who you are as a woman and a heart-centered leader that I would love to just kind of frame some questions around your areas of expertise, which I know will just be easy for you to speak of from your heart. So I, I kind of want to wing it with you today. Let's wing it. I'm ready. Let's wing it. Now, I know that you lead and love to talk about Indigenous wellness. So I don't want to harp or mention the word of the last 20 months of our life, but let's just talk about Indigenous wellness during unprecedented times. And maybe you could share with us a little bit of a story that will just unpack and give the listeners a little glimpse from from that part of your world and what you're involved in. 
That's a great question. Uh, a great place to start, I think, because it is so timely and it is so very much, you know, kind of the, the dominant piece in the headlines in Canada. It is something that's been unprecedented, but I think many other, you know, important uh, Indigenous, you know, leaders have also shared that this is not new information for Indigenous Canadians, for Indigenous people in North America on Turtle Island, as we call it. You know, we've grown up in our families with the stories of these realities. It's really for the first time where these stories are being told about these losses, about these genocidal atrocities. And it's the first time that Canadians are not gaslighting us back. It's the first time where they're saying, wow, we can't argue with this evidence. It's the first time they're starting to go, oh my gosh, it really wasn't very long ago. And it's, it's always coming back to the point of it's still happening. These things are still happening. You just swap out residential school for child welfare. It's still happening. Our kids are still dying. Our women are still dying. Our men are still dying. And so it has really, you know, it's, it's maybe a heavy piece to start with, but it is important because we can't overlook these things uh, when we think about that heart-centered leadership. It is very much about holding space for people, uh, Indigenous to, you know, First Nations, Inuit, Métis, Michif, uh, to to have the space they need to grieve and to be in a place of coping. You know, these these losses that are coming out in the news for everyday Canadians, uh, they're someone's grandmother, they're someone's, you know, uncle, someone's mom. There's many folks who are important leaders who they themselves today are living and working, but carrying the lived experience of having attended residential school themselves or the day school. And, you know, whether you slept there or not, it was not a huge uh, difference to that reality. And it was something that really broke through the barriers of the, that internalized peace. That's what those schools did for our, our families, uh, was to break down the, the holistic wellness and the natural family viability that once existed. And it was a very successful government policy. It did what it was intended to do. I'm glad that you that you said and and feel interpret it as a heavy way to start because I think imperfection is heavy. And I'm happy to tell you that I have two daughters and my youngest daughter is pursuing a, a double degree in political science and social justice and peace. And we've got a future heart-centered global leader coming out to talk about, lead, break down everything you just talked about. And it's so interesting because I get asked all the time, you know, where, where did she, you know, where did she get this visceral level of caring for all these different types of people? And I just, my answer is always simple, her heart. We, we went to our local church. I'm in London, Ontario. and the laying out of the shoes from that public display. And I can tell you wholeheartedly on a visceral level, the sadness I felt walking up to see that. And, you know, my youngest daughter, Laura said, I need you to take me. 
I don't want to drive because I need you to take me because I'm already emotional and we haven't left the house. And to see other members of my city and community there, it, it leads in nicely to my next question because you love to talk about and, and, and lead with heart for generational healing and empowerment. I just want to segue this with an alignment piece before you answer. I used to be a disability case manager, and I, I mostly looked after catastrophic brain injury. And the alignment is, and I think you'll, you'll meet me at a deep level with this, it's a hidden hurt. So like you said, because you can't see it and there's not evidence, whether it's in the media, physical, whatever, how does one even start to learn and view generational healing? And how do you get to the depths of having empowerment to to sustain it and maintain it? Again, it's a heavy question, but I think it's such a needed conversation. And I think you're the best person to have this conversation with. Yes, absolutely. It is such an important place of intersection. I think this, you know, you mentioned your daughter's interests of social justice and political science. You know, I think that's something that our, our younger generation is really looking deeply at. How, how do we represent the Canada, the ideals of the Canada we were raised with? Because the truth, the reality is just not meshing. And that's, you know, that's something that is important for folks who are not Indigenous to really carry with them. Something's not adding up. And when we think about that generational or intergenerational healing piece, it's something many people can relate to. If you've had parents or maybe further back in your family tree, uh, grandparents or so on and so forth, who, you know, there was poverty or addictions or trauma. Any Anyone who's had these experiences uh, in their family know how difficult it is to really get out from underneath those living patterns, those cycles of behavior. And when, when we have trauma and we have the reaction to the trauma, that's one section. And then we have, you know, those cycles of parenting and family life. And it is really difficult and it is difficult work. At the same time, when I think about that family wellness and that that generational healing piece, someone has to be the cycle breaker. And that's, I think, what any, any person who has lived those generational realities can tell you. Someone at some point has to do the work. It's brutal work. It starts in a, in a way where how do you offer more to your family than what you had? And I think that's also a really common place for parents to start out is, well, I want to do X, Y, Z better than my parents, or, you know, that was their generation and I'm, I'm better and I'm going to do better because I know better. And that's all we can do is do better when we know better. But that piece of the, the hidden you know, nobody wants to acknowledge that they've been poor for generations. No one wants to acknowledge that domestic violence has been acceptable for generations. There's so many uh, branches to that tree. And when we think about breaking the cycle, some people embark on it, and it is a, a mental health piece that you are fighting for your own mental health, for your own well being. You know, not everyone has the luxury 
of family support, of resources to, you know, pursue and embark on a healing journey. There's a lot of different things that come into play there. And with being that cycle breaker, you know, it's being accountable to your children. It's um, acknowledging what your parents went through and trying to, you know, look upon those generational struggles with some, I think, temperance and that I think maybe that's my heart centered work is, is learning to be kinder. And, you know, we indigenous families adopted so much from the residential schools and the, the different institutional attitudes, systemic attitudes, and a lot of those attitudes persist, but we've adopted and shared so much and made that part of our intergenerational experience. So we do have to remove the negative from that inner voice. We have to remove the harmful from that inner voice, we have to literally actively and constantly mitigate that negative voice that continues to perpetuate the harm and that kind of internalized racism piece. So for all of Canadians, I think, like I said, so many folks uh, can probably, you know, look within their family and see certain things, whether it's positive or negative, that has been generational in, in the experience in the cycle. But for the for pursuing healing, it uh, it is a privilege to be able to embark on a healing journey. It's often not possible. Often we're struggling to keep the roof over our heads. And you know, I say this as a middle class lady with you know post secondary education and and certainly privilege uh, as I'm a, I'm a white passing Native woman, and I do I did benefit from the colonization of my bloodline. And, you know, I do carry Polish and French ancestry, but having that privilege also displaced me from my connections to my family and my culture. So there's, it's such a, like I said, there's a lot of branches on that tree for sure. We could probably talk forever. (laughs) Oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm sitting here going, we could have like a day long show here. Couple things that you just said there that have, that hit me living patterns. I love that. And cycle breaker, you know, this show is all about being vulnerable and, and heart centered. I'm a cycle breaker. I come from, you know, a family. I had a mother who was alcoholic, no coping skills, high anxiety. And, you know, I became a yoga teacher a few years ago, just for my own mental health, well-being. And I remember when I graduated the class, there was no thought in it. My teacher looked at me and she said, tell us why you became a yoga teacher and what the last 200 hours has meant to you. And I said, I became a yoga teacher so that I could heal my heart Mm -hmm. from not having a mom. I had a mom from a bloodline But that cycle breaker, that is so deep for me because you're right. It's the healing. It's the work. And I've had other people say, you know, how did you know you were going to be a good mother? And I said, I always knew that I would become the mother that I wanted to have. So it's very interesting where we allow that heart and head alignment because it can either take you down in down into the darkness where you can stay or you can keep that glimmer of light open at the end of the tunnel and just keep doing a little bit each day. 
And, and I think that's healing. And I think even though we're all human beings, I think we all have some level of healing to do every day, whether we want to talk about it or acknowledge it. And again, it's that hidden hurt. Do you see why I didn't want a structured interview with you? Because I just knew this was going to be rich and amazing and I could talk to you all day, but it's a half hour show. So I got to keep going. I want to give you the question that has permanent residency because I think it's important. I think it gives us that global alignment. What imperfections does Crystal bring to her heart-centered leadership? You know, I thought a lot about this, this permanent, because it is your permanent question, you know, and it is such an important one because to be a leader, it's not about filling out a, a silhouette or checking a certain amount of boxes. I think for a long time, I resisted the idea of being a leader, but it is for me that imperfect quality, I think, is that. I'm a matriarch, I'm a nurturer, I'm a mother in everything I do. At times, that is exhibited through, I think, perfectionism, (laughs) which if anyone else is a perfectionist and listening knows that it's not actually about being perfect, but it is about having certain standards. And I've always been very driven to do a good job. You know, I, I wanted people to walk away with good thoughts about my name and myself as a person. And I always wanted to put things out into the world that I could be proud to claim. And I didn't want anything to come back and bite me later because I didn't want to be responsible for just not being well thought out and well researched and, and speaking from a place of knowledge. And I think it's really easy, especially in the times of the internet where, you know, anybody can be an armchair critic, but it it is harder to do the research, the real research and, you know, go deeper on a subject. And that's something I think as a mom, uh, you know, I was a mom a long time before I had kids. I have uh, three younger siblings and you know, certainly take that uh, piece of indigeneity where, you know, your cousins are your siblings and your, your aunts and uncles are, are just like extra parents. And, and that's how I felt. And that's something that I also wanted to reclaim in my family was that uh, generational care. So yeah, I'm a mom, I'm guilty. (laughs) But I love it because one of my heart-centered leadership qualities is the ability to fail forward. And, and we model that by laughter. And, you know, when you can look in the mirror and have a good laugh itself, your kids are kind of like, what are you doing? And it's like, there is no perfection. Like we fail, we get up, we progress, we ability, you know, give ourselves that ability to fail forward. So I love that. It's probably one of the top three that I've heard being asked Uh, that question to my guests. And we've had over 130 on the show and it's uh, perfectionism and patience and listening are probably the top three. (laughs) You're in good company, Crystal. (laughs) Okay. My last leadership question is how do you feel, or maybe you can share with us your interpretation or even your leadership. How can we empower more caregivers? I think with empowering caregivers, it's actually really, really simple. Uh, it starts in your own home. It starts in your own family. It starts in your workplace. You know, we all recognize those people who go above and beyond. We all can point out who those folks are that we call on in a time of need or duress. You know, that that regular ear, 
that person you know will pick up your kid because you can't, like that sort of thing. We all have those people around us that we rely on and they're caregivers. They're caregivers. They are the, the backbone of community. You know, it's, it's something that I think we've lost a lot of in, in our modern society. The ability to connect with our, our community, our neighbors, you know, we tend to be in this busy place in, you know, most of us are in cities or having to be in city spaces or back and forth. Um, it is the nature of people to, you know, have to go to the cities and things like that. And city life can be really, I think, draining when, when we think about community and you do get overwhelmed because you can't find the same level of connection as you, you might in a slower approach to connection. And there's so many elements in society that we can't control. But when we look at supporting caregivers, it really does just start at home. And if it's your mom who calls you every other day, if it's, you know, your aunt that never fails to send you an e-card, you know, it's those little reminders that you matter to someone. And it doesn't take much to tell someone that you appreciate their caring for you. One of the most common things I encounter as a life spectrum doula is, you know, folks who, and a counselor, folks, often women who say, I don't have anything to offer. I've only been looking after children in a house for all these years, or I don't have any skills. All I can do is, you know, make suppers and stuff. And I just shake my head because... I think it was Roseanne who popularized the term the domestic goddess. Embrace it. Embrace what it is you've actually done. It's not just caring for kids and meal planning. It's budgeting. It's time management. It's, you know, you know, probably advocacy and management and all these amazing skills that we just do because we have to. And it's not to be minimized. Stop minimizing it. It's everything. If you were not nurtured, you wouldn't have survived into adulthood. And supporting and honoring the people who are able to offer that nurturing you know, is, is so important to me. And there's just so much these caregivers can offer. And when we start to elevate the value of caregivers, I think we start to reclaim balance in society. It's not the you know, big wig that we admire for, you know, selling something like an app for $2 million or something. Not that that isn't awesome. I hope I get lucky and lightning strikes and I design an app that sells for $2 million too. But uh, we, it doesn't, it doesn't take anything away from that person who, you know, you count on when you're sick or the person that has made sure that the rent was paid and the house was clean and you always had what you needed for school or, you know, or so-and-so, you know, was dealing with cancer and, you know, maybe you were the, the, the one relative of proximity who never let that person down, or maybe you were the neighbor of the relative and you always gave them a ride. There's just so many ways that kindness reinforces our community. I think before before we get too deep off the capitalism end, we need to just take a moment, take a beat and, and think about how we can just say, I appreciate you and I appreciate you for this because uh, those caregivers, you know, I'm going to make them all doulas. That's, that's my plan. They're going to be really big powerhouses as entrepreneurs and 
you're going to need to pay them later. So you might as well thank them now. <laughs> well, and what I love about that is I, I always promote that leadership belongs to everyone. You don't need a title or stature or initials after your name because not everybody's afforded that opportunity or trajectory in life. And we all have the ability to be a heart-centered leader. And when you think about everything that you've done in your life, probably like me from your first role as a young girl being a babysitter right up into where what you're doing now as a woman, think of how many transferable skills are in your toolkit. There's a lot. I think one of the best things that I ever did was be a server and a bartender. Absolutely. It's like being a hairdresser. I mean, hairstylists, whatever you want to call them. Everybody loves going to their hairstylist. They're like, you know, you're sitting in the chair getting therapy and your hair done at the same time. And I joke because I have several friends that are hairstylists, but it all comes down to one simple thing. There's a heart-centered relationship there and there's foundational trust and rapport. And even though, you know, I'm being facetious in my example, it's a truthful one. Who does not love their hairstylist? Who does not like talking to a bartender? Who has no one in their life will, you know, tell their story to a server? I have been in all three of those situations and it's all encompassing. We all are on this earth to help and lead and teach each other. And like you said, we, we could have a whole other show just on that. It's so true. I'm going to switch over to my fab four, just four fun questions and and tell us what's on the top of that brilliant mind. First question, tell us something that we don't know about you. People don't know that I am a published co-author. I was really excited to be part of an amazing project called The Bold Spirit Caring for the Dying. And that came out just this past spring. So I'm really excited about that. I, my pen name is Crystal Waban. Waban is an Ojibwe word for the name Don, which is actually my middle name. But uh, I spent quite a bit of time growing up in Thunder Bay and in northern northwestern Ontario. And it's Ojibwe territory. So I, I wanted to acknowledge that. And I'm very proud of that contribution. And I hope to have another book, <laughs> all mine or collaborating with others again. Either way, I love to write. That's beautiful. And we'll uh, we'll make sure we get that link so we can share it in the podcast description below. Okay, second question. Share with us a book that you have read that really impacted your life. Uh, I think it's got to be Plants Have So Much to Teach Us, All We Have to Do is Ask. And of course, the author's name is not written down for me to look at. It's Mary... I think it's Genus. I'm not going to pronounce it right, but it's a pretty unique title. There's not another one like it. Plants are have so much to offer us. All you have to do is ask. And it's restored cultural teachings to me. We hear sometimes in Indigenous communities how the person is a, is a book Indian or a ceremonial Indian. And we have to, you know, make space for both, I think. And uh, for myself, someone who you know, doesn't uh, get out to ceremony as much as I'd like and very interested in plant medicines. That book was a revelation. It was, it was like entering into a ceremony. And if you're a book nerd like me, who just, you know, disappears into these books, uh, it was, it was a really wild and beautiful experience um, to see so much uh, logic in, in our reality, in our universe. 
I love that. I, um, I volunteer at hospice every week. And uh, one of the residents that passed away uh, really had a lovely, special relationship with her. And her daughter bought me a book and it's sitting on my bookshelf. So I'm going to go from my memory. The Wisdom from the Trees. Oh, yeah. Along the same lines. And I love Mother Nature. I'm a big hiker. Uh, You'll often find me hugging a tree, taking a selfie, because I believe in that white space in our schedule. I believe we need to get up from these desks, get away from these screens, and just get outside and embrace nature. So such an alignment there. I love it. I am going to ask you my third question. If I can give you one wish for the world, what would it be? To shift our values and conquer the climate crisis. I think that's really the only thing we should be focused on at this point. It's our responsibility. And uh, one of the elders I was really fortunate to learn from, Gitsatanamuk, he said, to me once, the young are coming for what's theirs because we can't be trusted. And I think that's something, especially being, you know, growing up with things like Captain Planet and stuff like that. Uh, our My generation was really grounded in, we have to save the planet, we have to save the whales, we have to fight acid rain. And, you know, we know that the whales are starting to come back to some of their old places and there is some healing happening. But uh, the, the Climate crisis is, you know, it's it's not for our grandchildren or our great grandchildren to deal with. It's it's for us. If I had that magic wand, genie in a bottle, all those things, yeah, I'd save our planet. Yeah, well said. Well, I'm going to say that I do not think it's a coincidence. Our paths have crossed, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think there's going to be many more to come. And just know that your wisdom and your experience and your brilliance and your heart-centeredness is so appreciated. And I'm appreciating your time today and sharing your heart on the show. And we're going to finish the show out with my last question. Please finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Heart-centered leadership is within you. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.